We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. It's not just about your physical appearance. It's about your attitude, your life view, and whether or not you retain some of that exuberance or joyous, childish-like interest in things that belie the actual chronological age. Mm-hmm. And there's this push-pull thing between people coming up. If you act too young, they say, act your age. On the other hand, people come up and they say, hey, you know what? 75 is the new 65. So which is it? You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 186, PH Factor, Getting Older. Where to from here? Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Good morning, Harry. So how are things in Nova Scotia? Cool. In fact, we're heading into a cool week. More seasonal, more fall-like. So uh, and the horses here love it. They love that cool weather, no flies to worry about. It's all good for them. How are things in Ontario? A little cool this morning. We've got some really nice, for my liking anyway, temperatures are in the low to mid-teens this morning and uh, looking to shape up to a nice day. Uh, so anyway, uh, how are things in Ontario? Oh, <laughs> 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 well, pretty good. Oh, cool. But not bad. Uh, See, folks, this is the life of being a senior citizen. This is what happens <laughs> right here. We get all discombobulated, and uh, it's all crapshoot. <laughs> hey, old man, take a look at my life. I'm a lot like you. I need some... I'm a lot like you are. I need someone to love the whole day through. Isn't that the truth? I need someone to love me the whole day through. Yes, we do. We need someone to love us the whole day through. No question about it. So what are we talking about today, Peter? You and I discussed this subject a few years back. Actually, we talked about Fading to Black, which was a podcast we did on death and dying and aging and so on. And today we've picked it up again on a different level because we're going to talk about a few things throughout this podcast regarding getting older, what societal feelings on this subject are, what we're experiencing, COVID, and so many other factors that have exacerbated this entire subject. Yeah. And I think we should start with a few facts so that people are aware of just how many people we're talking about when we talk about old people, senior citizens, what have you. So this is from the United States Census Bureau of 2020, where it said there are about 52 million people over the age of 65 at that point, projected to almost double by 2060, which would be about 95 million people, one in five people will be senior citizens at that point. And they'll be predicted to outnumber children in the next 10 years. Incredible. So there's just the sheer numbers and the impact that that generation has. And currently, uh, that generation, our generation, we account for about 75% of all prescription drug purchases, about 41% of all new cars, We spend about $7 billion online annually. We account for about 80% of all luxury travel. There's all of these elements where our generation is heavily invested in the economy. And when we sort of fade away, all of our inheritances are going to be passed along to another generation who will have to deal with that. So 
it's not just a small segment of society we're talking about. It's a growing segment that accounts for a heck of a lot of the economy. So to make the senior population a kind of an irrelevant afterthought is a bad idea at this point, I would say. And people may be surprised to know that seniors spend more time online than teenagers. To me, that's astounding. (laughs) Elaborate on that a little bit, Harry. They spend more time online surfing, buying things, sending photographs to their grandchildren or what have you than teenagers do. Apparently, according to the statistics I'm seeing here in this little article I have, Well, I would say that there are two reasons for that. One, they tend to be more sedentary. Mm -hmm. And because that segment of the population is increasing more rapidly than the youth, there's just more of us. We're really kind of junior seniors. We're just entering that phase. (laughs) Junior seniors, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) On the age chart, I categorize, but I certainly don't feel like it. However, we're not talking about what we feel. We're talking about what the actual experience is. Yes. And I, I would say anyone over 60, for that matter, maybe even earlier, experiences various levels of ageism in their workplace, societally speaking, or in any other facet of their life, whereby society deems certain behaviors associated with certain age levels. So you don't frequently see 70-year-olds running marathons, for example. There are exceptions, of course. Societally, we don't expect to see that. Yeah. So ageism begins oftentimes much earlier in our lives than actually is depicted in the demographics. So uh, let me ask you a more personal question, Peter. Have you ever experienced in the last number of years or currently ageism in the community that you live in? Personally experience it. I haven't directly. Now, maybe it's because I look perhaps a little bit younger than my actual age. I've had actually the opposite happen, whereby people will ask me for my license or verification of my age for the opposite reason. I imagine in time that will change as well, because if you live long enough, you do eventually look your age. So far, I haven't, but I have talked to peers who have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people our age experience it, maybe if not directly in a work situation, because many of us are retired, but more in terms of the community and the attitude of young people in grocery stores or other kinds of retail environments where oftentimes we feel a little bit invisible, intruding on their space or something. Well, I agree. And maybe now that you said that, I would go back a step and say, that's what I've experienced face to face. That doesn't mean that it hasn't occurred behind my back. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I may have had ageism thrust upon me, but I've never confronted it face to face yet or in a situation where I knew that my age was working against me. Mm-hmm. How about yourself? Well, that's a good question. In some ways, I don't feel I've experienced it directly either because I don't act my age. (laughs) I'm even a junior, junior, senior in my psychology, I guess. And in fact, at my age now of 71, I'm more physically active and pushing my body than I have maybe in my entire life. Strangely enough, was working with horses and in the country, certain things are expected and they're physical things and you got to get out there and do it. And it pushes one's body. 
So I don't experience it inwardly, but as we just talked about, more subtly out in the community, when people look at you, they look at the bald guy with the graying mustache. He's an oldie. (laughs) The entire subject of aging and getting older, it's not just about your physical appearance. It's about your attitude, your life view, and whether or not you retain some of that exuberance or joyous, childish-like interest in things that belie the actual chronological age. Mm -hmm. And there's this push-pull thing between people coming up, if you act too young, they say, act your age. On the other hand, people come up and they say, hey, you know what? 75 is the new 65. So which is it? Am I youngish or am I oldish? How am I to behave? When do I know that I'm old is the question. I think everybody should ask themselves at our stage. How do you know when you're old? How will you know, Peter, when you're old? Well, I don't know if there's a specific moment. I must say that as I approach 70, this is actually the first birthday that I've ever given any kind of thought to, <laughs> which is 7-0 coming up. Oh, what date, by the way? What date? In January, January of uh, 2023. Yeah. So I haven't really experienced anything specific. I have noticed in the last maybe four or five years I've had to modify a few things, but really up until now, I haven't really had to make any significant change, but I know that I'm very, very fortunate because I've had good health most of my life and that I have made choices that have been helpful for me. But the reality is I'm thinking about it more because I see what's around me, even my peers, I see differences. I'm having the experience of losing family members Specifically right now, I'm dealing with my father-in-law, but pretty much everyone from the 1930s is either gone or on their way out. Yeah. And so I'm witnessing things and I'm really trying to learn from the experience. And part of the reason we're having this discussion is because I brought up the whole idea of what I've been experiencing in some of these retirement homes and the treatment of seniors. And it's funny, I always say that not realizing that I'm essentially entering, well, technically I'm in that category myself. Yeah. Now, you actually talked to some seniors about some of these dynamics recently, haven't you? What can you share about that conversation? Well, I've had a longtime customer who happens to be a retired nurse, and she invited me to the home of a retired psychotherapist and another retired nurse. Mm -hmm. And they were kind enough to indulge me in a conversation where we discussed a variety of issues that included, though not limited to, the whole aging process, ageism and their thoughts on the current state of medical institutions and medically assisted dying and so on, all these subjects that discussed some of their experiences, not only personally and within their families, but also professionally (laughs) that related to these things. Can you share some of their comments or their thoughts? Well, there were many. There's one that specifically stuck with me, which was uh, one of the retired nurses. We were talking about death and how people experience the whole issue of dying and how some people are seemingly comfortable with it or don't seem to be afraid of it. Others don't wish to talk about it. Others fear it. And we all agree that it's basically an issue dealing with the unknown. We all deal with the unknown differently. And in this particular case, she said something that was extremely interesting to me. 
she mentioned the idea of eating a carrot. Mm -hmm. And when she ate the carrot, she explained, you eat the carrot and the carrot goes into your body. You digest the carrot. And then the carrot in some way feeds you, feeds your organs, feeds your system, just like any food is designed to do. It's to nourish the body. And then, of course, part of it goes to waste, which in turn fertilizes the ground, grows a tree, and basically organically goes back into the system and gives life to something else. Mm -hmm. And then she said, but what about the carrot? What benefit does the carrot have? <laughs> and when she first said it, I kind of laughed because I thought, wow, that's a really interesting question because really, what does, what does the carrot gain? Well, it's not about gain, I guess is the point, because the carrot, me, the earth, the climate, it's all one interrelated ecosystem. So everything gains when one thing gains. Everything loses when one thing loses. So I don't think it's about gain or loss, right? And so death itself is not about gain or loss, surely, from my point of view anyway. I thought it was an interesting question to ask. Yeah. Because essentially what she was alluding to and later explained was that some of us wonder what our worth is. In essence, imagine yourself being the carrot. Because I think that's really what the story was about. E. Who are you? What are you? You're here one moment, you're gone the next. Who remembers you? In fact, I think it was, um, I'm trying to remember, we did a podcast with Onscar mm -hmm. in TSP 162 when he was reminiscing about his grandfather and so on and the love he had for him. And he said something which stuck with me and I think is appropriate to use right now. He said, people don't completely die if they're remembered. E. Sure. And I think that's what the carrot analogy was basically, I think, one of, if I'm the carrot, what happens to me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an age-old question. It's a spiritual question. And I think those who have different faiths have their own story for what happens to the carrot. It's a very personal thing. And often I think no matter what religion or spiritual tradition one is from, when that moment comes of death, I think it's a unique experience to every single individual. I don't think it's a group experience in that way. So it's the great mystery that we all have to face. And being junior seniors as we are, or seniors as many are, we have a lot less in front of us in terms of life than behind us. So it's looming. We're approaching that curtain, you and I and millions of other people. The queen just went through that curtain. Mm -hmm. Bless her heart and rest in peace. So we're all going to get there, and that's just the fact. And all you can do in some cases is be lighthearted about it. To make it too heavy a thing becomes a real burden for everyone. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you mentioned the Queen. It was just pure coincidence because we had this podcast programmed a couple of days before she passed. Yep. And so just coincidental that we're doing this podcast. And getting back to what you were talking about, our particular spiritual sense of and so on, mm. In that same conversation and the relevance of the carrot to her story, yeah. the other retired nurse who has a different view on dying empathized with her emotions and expressed back to her, maybe if you change your perspective, and then she used herself as an example, she said, I'm kind of excited about dying because I'm curious about the unknown, which was the antithesis of what was being communicated in terms of the fear of the unknown. Yeah, and there's the whole big taboo about death.
the elderly have come into prominence, not necessarily in a good way, but there's been a lot of attention drawn to them because of circumstance, because of all the fatalities. In fact, in our own country in Canada, 80% plus of all the deaths associated with COVID were senior citizens. Yeah, this is a, a little discussion, a little sidebar to our big discussion about growing old, is the utter surprise and shock that I feel towards what happened in those early days of COVID in March 2020, April, May, June, mm -hmm. those early months, when it became known very quickly that the virus was targeting a particular population, namely those who were on the average in their 80s and who, generally speaking, had underlying medical conditions. Mm -hmm. We knew that very early on. Experts, health experts knew that. And the fact is that where governments fell down all around the world, without exception, really, is around protecting people in long-term care facilities, seniors and seniors' residences, et cetera, who took the brunt of the virus early on. And there seemed to be no direct attempts to protect them, which just shocked me, no end. What happened? How is it that all around the world, people failed to protect the most vulnerable citizens in the face of that virus. It's a mystery to me that's going to take a long time to unravel, I think, and has to be accounted for at some point. We need to understand what happened and why that happened. Is it part of ageism? I mean, that we don't care enough about our seniors to protect them? I don't know. This is interesting because a 2020 study published in the journals of gerontology I quote here, found that the vulnerability of older adults was seen as a problem to be solved through forced and indefinite segregation or isolation. And such measures were widely seen as acceptable by society. Older adults were often blamed for the ensuing lockdowns and restrictions. A 2021 study published in the Sociological Review characterized the treatment of elders amid the pandemic as intergenerational discounting breakdown in reciprocal obligations of care, giving rise to accusations of hypocrisy, expressions of resentment and rage, and the description of the virus as the boomer remover. Gee, wow. The boomer remover. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> all of these layers of ageism of how we treat our elderly kind of emerged in the last few years. And the big weaknesses and darknesses of that world have shown themselves. And governments all around have promised to do better by these older folks in that segment of the population and to make changes to the long-term care situation and all of that. It remains to be seen just what they do. But it was a really a sad, I think, chapter in our history, those few years where the elderly took the brunt of the virus and had very little protection. Mm -hmm. And in keeping in line with that, just to continue that quote, it said that in particular, the study found that younger generations perceived the pandemic as comparable to climate change as a crisis and saw the disproportionate effect of COVID-19 on older generations as karmic due to the latter's supposed failure in mitigating climate change. Wow. How's that? Wow. That's an incredible thing. There may be a little bit of truth to it, to be honest with you, but that's a pretty heavy accusation to lay at the feet of grandpa or grandma 
Well, in essence, what they're talking about is they're making us responsible or at least partially responsible for the conditions of the environment that they're growing up in now because we've passed it on to them. And so when they describe it as karmic, it doesn't mean that everyone feels like that, but it's something that's worth noting. As you said, you responded with a wow, Mm -hmm. but there is some kind of a form of justice, so to speak, in many people's heads, especially younger people. Well, there's another little element here, which not a digression so much, but it's part of the whole puzzle of growing old. And that is what old people are called. Uh, George Carlin had a lot of his comedy routines were based around the way we use words and language and the way we hide truth behind colloquialisms and indefinite language. So, for example, old people, once upon a time, old people were old people. And then they became seniors, and then they became senior citizens, and then they became the aged, and then they became the elderly. And in fact, all of these terms kind of soften the truth of the matter, which is that people at a certain age, at least, are old. And there's nothing wrong with that. If somebody's old, that implies that they've lived a long time, that they've seen a lot, that they have wisdom to share, et cetera, et cetera. But to change it to senior citizens, then they just become units in a society. Well, in many cases, we've become an avoidance society in general, in the sense that you refer to that with old people. The same thing is happening with the subject of death. We avoid it. Mm -hmm. And part of the reasons why we have such difficulty with these things is because we do not open the dialogue on these subjects. We try to make ourselves comfortable all the time. Yeah, we don't speak in plain English. Carlin did a routine on death. You're talking about passing away, meeting the angels instead of dying, which is what it is. Basic. It's basic dying. And we should just call it what it is. And I think it's a perfect segue to the whole subject of death in terms of how we handle it (laughs) and also our inability to have, not everyone, but many people have difficulty having this discussion within their families to let people know how they feel about what they would like to happen or or how they're experiencing things. Mm. And so things are often left to the last minute where things are chaotic, highly emotional and disruptive, and people don't know what to do. And so they make the whole subject of death much more difficult than it has to be. Yeah. And seniors have to take some responsibility for that too. A lot of seniors don't talk to their family about their impending death. They don't want to burden them. They don't want to bring up a subject that is uncomfortable and that sort of thing. And so often it takes them by surprise. And then the family is left to pick up the pieces, often with arguments as to what the parent meant, wanted for their kids or what have you. It can lead to all kinds of skirmishes and uncomfortable situations for families when the person who is approaching death doesn't sort of think ahead and offer that to their children for the after, if you like. In fairness, some seniors also have difficulty coming to terms with it themselves, and maybe that discussion with the family will help them through that process as well, because not everyone is comfortable having that discussion. Even the person who should initiate the conversation, they themselves may not be ready to initiate that conversation. For some people, even talking about death, they have this idea in their head that they're sort of bringing it on by talking about it. Yeah, that's true. That's true.
So, Harry, while we're talking about all these issues related to so-called senior citizens and aging and so on, I think one of the most prominent areas on the books today, including the legal system, is this whole idea of medical-assisted dying, or MAID, M-A-I-D, which is the acronym. This is an area that has taken some prominence in Western culture of late, well, specifically in North America, because it's already been in use and in practice in countries like Switzerland and many of the Scandinavian countries where they have a completely different view of medical-assisted dying. What stands out for you about that situation? What I've learned, and as I mentioned to you, I had this meeting with the two retired nurses and the retired psychotherapist, and I gained a little bit more insight into some of the actual practicalities of this and some of the challenges that are being created by even implementing the systems. For example, legally, it's been passed in Canada, or some things have been passed, but there are still many conditions and questions that arise about people's capability and what conditions are necessary in order for the courts to grant an individual the right to end their own life. How do you feel about it, Harry? Well, I'll tell you how I feel about it, Peter. We routinely administer a lethal injection to our cats when they are clearly close to the end of their life and they're in pain and they cannot live their life in the normal way. We do that for cats, we do that for dogs, we do that for animals of all sorts and all kinds. And either we are deserving of treatment at least as respectful as we do for animals who are in pain at that level, or we are tyrants, medical tyrants, forcing people to live longer than they really need to in their own minds. So I am all for it and done responsibly, of course. I mean, a person needs to be in their right mind to make that decision. I think that makes sense to make sure that that's the case. But beyond that, I think it needs to be the individual's decision overall. That's my view. That happens to be my view as well. There are, of course, challenges which we won't get into any details here because we're just having a broader discussion on our thoughts and feelings about this. I personally am glad that this has begun. Uh, I've heard already a couple of podcasts or, or interviews with people who've actually gone through the process. Well, the people that went through the process and were able to explain it. Obviously, the person who was deceased was not able to, but conversations also included them prior to these things happening. Mm -hmm. And what I was taken by was mostly the response in those particular cases that I did hear about of the people who were involved in the process, the surviving members of the family, and what they expressed as a sort of bittersweet experience where there was an obvious sadness and loss, but at the same time, they seemed to be quite thankful that the person who chose to end their life included them in the process. And it was a clear decision that they were making, which took the onus off the family members to make a decision that would have been extremely difficult to make, yep. regardless of the circumstances. Yeah, and to be able to put that in some sort of uh, document in advance, and people do, if I'm not able to be in my right mind and it's close to the end, 
I would like to have assisted suicide happen. I mean, people are creating these documents, whether they're being respected is another question. Sometimes there are disputes about that and hospitals don't want to take responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. But all of these things have to be dealt with because they're ethical and moral questions. They're not straightforward. So we have to evolve as a society to get to that place where death becomes less monstrous nightmare and more a transition to another place, another state of mind or something. But we're not there yet. So consequently, people are still confused about this whole scenario and what's right and what's wrong in it. Mm -hmm. I think some people also have an issue in terms of, well, guilt is an obvious one because there's people who have unfinished business with people who are making an exit, so to speak. It becomes much more challenging when you feel that you haven't had a good closing. Do you know what I'm saying? How do you mean? Say more. Sometimes people have difficulty letting go of people, not because of the person who's passing, but because of their own mental and emotional state. They're not ready to let go of that person. They still have issues that they have to resolve, whether it's guilt, whether it's lifelong trauma, difficulty with that particular parent or sibling or loved one. Yeah, yeah. They don't have proper closure in their view. Yeah, but Peter, I mean, it doesn't matter when you die. There will always be things that are unsaid that people wish they had said. There will always be issues that are unresolved between human beings. That's just life. No perfect exits in that regard. I totally agree. Yeah. And so, you know, to expect that somehow, to wrap it all up and then to say, okay, Gramps, now it's time. I let you go. That's just not going to happen. And it's not up to you anyway. It's up to Gramps, if he's in his right mind, to decide that. This is exactly why I brought it up. I've seen people even who have, prior to someone's passing, have a total agreement on a particular closing. But then when it actually comes to doing it or, or when it's happening... There's one or two or more members of that group that just don't seem to be able to go through with it. Right. Or have a different attitude. For example, I'm going to raise poetry into the light of day here, <laughs> which I like to do now and then. Sure. Dylan Thomas wrote a famous poem, and people will recognize this because the line goes, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage rage against the dying of the light. And the whole poem is about not going gently into death, but holding on to life with everything you've got, fighting the darkness as it comes upon you. So people who are witnessing their parent or grandparent passing, if they have that kind of attitude, they don't want grandpa to say, it's time, let me go. They want grandpa to keep fighting to live. So it's all about your attitude towards it. So people need to look at their own attitude towards death and dying when they're dealing with a family member who is in that place where they feel it's time they should go. And question whether it's for them or for yourself. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Here's another poem I want to share, part of a poem. It's a famous poem by T.S. Eliot from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which is one of the most beautiful poems about aging and growing old, I think, that's ever been written. So I'm just going to read you the last little bit of it here. It says, I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled, 
Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing, each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. Beautiful, Harry. Why don't we close this podcast out with three quotes? And why don't you handle the first two? Sure. There, there's some lighter-hearted quotes, let's say, about aging. You're only young once, but you can stay immature indefinitely. And that's by Ogden Nash. And the second one is, birthdays are good for you. Statistics show that the people who have the most live the longest. <laughs> <laughs> Larry Lorenzoni said that one. And Bob Hope said, I don't feel old. I don't feel anything until noon. Then it's time for my nap. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. And before we end this podcast, I think we should give a shout out to all those seniors out there who actually listen to this podcast and respond to it. And we would love to hear your comments and questions and quotes, if you have any. Leave a comment on our website. There's a little audio button. You can just hit that and leave your comment and we'll share it at the next podcast. At any rate, send your comments. We love them. Yes. And for me to close, I do want to give at least a first name to the three ladies who were kind enough to indulge me in a conversation about this subject, one that I appreciated and enjoyed as well. So a thank you to Heather, Jane, and Patricia for their input. And on that note, Harry, ciao. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.